Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that right now you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Pommen, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. Today, we're going to discuss the morality of dealing with authoritarian and otherwise awful states and some issues surrounding COVID travel. But first, I want to go to New York, where last week, Lee Zeldin, who is a member of Congress, who is running for governor in that state, was uh, doing a campaign event where a man uh, came up on stage with some kind of a makeshift knife and uh, attempt to attack Lee Zeldin. Uh, this person, and this is, can perhaps get into other discussions of how we're handling crime in general, uh, was a- arrested by New York authorities and then released on bail almost ele- immediately and later was arrested by federal authorities and is currently being held after being arrested by federal authorities. Um, so, yes, he was already facing state uh, charges when he was arrested by the feds. Uh, he'd been in charge with attempted assault in the second degree after being accused of confronting Zeldin, a Republican, while he was giving a speech in Fairpoint, New York. Uh, according to this story here from CNN, he attempt, quote, attempted to stab Zeldin. A member uh, or a statement from the campaign said the GOP lawmaker grabbed the attacker's wrist to stop him until several others assisted in taking the attacker down to the ground. Um, we'll include the video of this in the show notes. And w- when you see it, it is, I think, kind of one of those what's hard to believe what's going on uh, where I, uh, people really aren't reacting to it the way that you think people would react to it. And I'm thinking this is one of the things that is going to change, that anybody now who uh, begins to approach someone who's a political candidate for office is probably going to get gang tackled pretty quickly. But I had uh, a good friend of mine shared this story with the suggestion of like we've we've already started to see an escalation in types of political violence. Of course, we've had these the hearings over the last several weeks about January 6th, which I think quite clearly is political violence uh, in the context of some conversations about gun violence and mass shootings. Uh, one of the attempts at that was, of course, the congressional baseball game from a few years ago where a, a Bernie Sanders campaign volunteer for politically motivated reasons attempted to kill a number of members of Congress, all Republicans. Uh, there are – we have, I think, seen more incidents of political violence and and maybe enough to say there's been an escalation of all of it. For years, when people would bring up how bad things are getting in politics, I would always remind them of what life was like in America in the you know, late 1960s and the 1970s, where I think there was like a domestic terrorist attack every day of some sort. Uh, we're clearly not to that level now. But my, my friend's contention was that this is already getting bad and it is just going to get worse. So I'll throw it out there. How bad is the problem of political violence now? And do you agree with the suggestion that it is just going to continue to escalate and there's not a whole lot at the moment that would hold it back? 
I mean, you see this in times of increased polarization. You see this in times when people lose faith in institutions more acutely. When you bring up that period in the late 60s, early 70s, that's what we had in America. We had a bunch of people who had lost faith in America, in its institutions. Um, and you had, you know, high profile political assassinations as well as sort of low level street violence. Um, and this is, this is something that, that we saw, um, uh, in 2020, um, on this sort of low level scale, uh, throughout the country. And I think the only way you can combat it is, you know, there's obvious cases where law enforcement could be more vigilant, People can be more mindful of the possibility of these sorts of things. But I don't think you solve it unless you restore some sort of confidence in our institutions. Now, there are a couple of ways to do that. There are all the sort of like practical obstacles that we talk a lot about in the sort of institutional dysfunction. There's also a way in which uh, opportunists on both the left and the right seek to sort of fan this sort of political hatred. And that's another place. Um, you see this even in the national press. Um, you know, some, you know, cases where um, there are critiques leveled. We had this uh, when the Supreme Court, <clears throat> when we were awaiting the Dobbs decision and the sort of demonstrations happening outside of Supreme Court justices' homes. And the fully armed man who showed up at the home of Brett Kavanaugh. And there is there is something to the fact that you had major national newspapers with editorials supporting a very confrontational, if not outright violent, protest. But, you know, there's something that, you know, an uncle of mine once said to me about sort of all politicians' rhetoric is, you know, with politicians on the right, always imagine that they're a little bit more right-wing than they let on. And with politicians on the left, that they're a little bit, you know, they're on the margin more left-wing than they let on. Now, when he told me this, this was, you know, in the sort of 90s Bill Clinton era triangulation, um, sort of third wave, sort of an international approach. You saw this in Britain with Tony Blair. You see the exact opposite today where I, I tend to think that politicians, uh, right-wing politicians advertise themselves as a little bit more right-wing than they actually are. And left-wing politicians do the same. And when you cultivate that sort of extremism, when when you cultivate that sort of polarization, there are always people that are going to take that to extremes. And when the rhetoric gets elevated on the margin, you get more of those people. So there's certainly institutional reform. There's certainly a sort of reform of American institutions that could help this, but more immediately, and something that everyone can engage in and take some responsibility for, is sort of lowering the temperature on the political rhetoric, so that there, so that you know, uh, if if we can if we can cool the temperatures a little bit, maybe on the margin, we can minimize the amount of people that become so agitated and so displaced from reality that they think that violence is an acceptable way to solve political problems. To contextualize this real quick, so this uh, piece from the New York Times here on a uh, recent survey of 8,600 adults in the United States conducted from mid-May to early June by Ipsos. 
uh, found that about one in five adults in the United States would be willing to condone acts of political violence. Um, <clears throat> the group said that they would be willing to condone such violence uh, mounted to about 20.5 percent of those surveyed, with a majority of that group answering that, quote, in general, the use of force was at least, quote, sometimes justified. The remaining three percent answered that such violence was usually or always justified. I don't know what to think of that survey. It sounds kind of squishy categories there. So, you know, sometimes justified, people can imagine a scenario which actually is very justifiable and then say, okay, this is fine. So I don't know if I'd make too much of that. But obviously, this is in the news for a reason. Uh, This is a real polarization is a real problem. The kind of radicalization, um, at least of the rhetoric of right and left, is a real problem. Um, I actually, my... What I think I have to contribute to this conversation is more with regards to the different responses between uh, the NYPD and the FBI. Um, In addition to all of the problems with politically motivated violence, um, this person not only thought, hey, this is justifiable from a political point of view, um, but they also said, I don't care about the laws of this country. Right, this is open public attacking someone with a knife in front of cameras. Right. Um, so the economist uh, Kenneth Bolding, um, he was nominated. Uh, he did not win, but he was nominated for both the Nobel Prize in Economics and the Nobel Peace Prize because he was also a, a peace theorist. And a lot of that came down to analyzing the dynamics of conflict. Um, and he talked about different systems in societies, exchange systems like the market. There's integrative systems like the family and religion. And there's threat systems uh, like the law. Um, the law is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing. And the way it works is you say, don't do this thing or, or this bad thing will be done to you, right? Um, and one of the problems that any threat system faces is maintaining its legitimacy because it is costly to actually carry out a threat. Um, and it's costly to follow through on that. And every time you have to, the integrity of that threat system is being uh, is being tested. Um, and this is a case where, you know, arresting the guy and just letting him go on bail when, like, this is a violent, potentially violent, attempted violent criminal. Um, and, you know, like, that's incredibly irresponsible, I think. It kind of tells people, okay, yeah, maybe we'll give you a misdemeanor, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe the, the local courts would have, uh, you know, really come down hard on this guy. So I don't want to, I don't want to jump to too many conclusions. Um, but he talked about how you have, what you end up having is a sort of threat counter threat system. Um, and there's a, a variety of ways, uh, the threatened can respond. One of the ways is they respond with violence. Um, and then you end up with basically war, the opposite of peace, right? Um, uh, they they test that system. Uh, in other ways, you have kind of a counter threat. They say, well, you know, yeah, you're threatening us, but we're going to threaten you back. And then you have this weird stalemate, which is also not peace. Uh, but the way in which you end up with peace in society is through an integrative response. Um, you find a way um, to restore that legitimacy um, so that this person, no matter what they're feeling about the political candidate, because I don't think it's ever going to, we're ever going to get to a place as a, as a country where people don't to some degree, hate their political opponents. I I don't think anyone should hate anyone, but that will happen in every society. Um, I would like it that in that situation, those people still respect the law um, and still say, well, I don't like this guy. I don't want him to win. I think it would be terrible if he did. 
but it is wrong and frankly illegal <laughs> to try to stab him. Um, and I'm not going to do it because of that. That was not enough for this person. Uh, I'm going to correct the record. <clears throat> I was incorrect about something earlier, okay. and it actually makes the point even worse okay. um, that you were getting at, Dylan, which was, uh, again, from the CNN piece. Following his initial arrest Thursday, this guy was held for six hours before his arraignment, where he was released on his own recognizance, according to the Monroe County Sheriff's Department. Uh, he had travel restrictions limiting him to Monroe County, and an order of protection was also issued for him to stay away from Zeldin. Uh, again, from the CNN report, due to the class of felony allegedly committed— under New York law, the presiding judge couldn't have set bond even if he wanted to, Hurley previously told CNN. This is a spokesman for the, the sheriff's department. In 2019, New York's bail reform law eliminated cash bail for most misdemeanor and nonviolent felony charges, and uh, Class E is the least serious class of felony. Uh, so this is – a topic that I have somewhat mixed opinions on because we see it here in practice where I think the perhaps, I, I, I don't know, the charging on this might be wrong. He should have been charged with something more serious because it strikes me as a violent felony, even if it's attempted, the it's attempted violence. But the intentions of these bail reform laws is to avoid situations where you have people who are arrested and end up spending an inordinate amount of time in jail before their trials actually happen because they cannot afford yes, to yeah. post bond and get out. And I think there's a legitimate concern there. I especially mm -hmm. when you consider, you know, let's move a little bit south from where this happened in New York State down to New York City and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that anybody who is sent off in New York City to Rikers Island, that they're committing some kind of a human rights violation. Uh, read up, if you have not, on what the conditions are like at Rikers Island. There is an effort underway, I believe, uh, was passed by the city council to close it by the end of this decade. Um, it, it is a brutal and an awful place. And while you may have the feelings, and I might have sympathies with those as well, that violent criminals, you're fine sending them off to a place like that. Um, somebody who commits a much lower level crime, is it the best use of state time and resources? Is it just because they have no money to keep them in a facility like that until and through their trial. I don't know that it is. So I, I, I get frustrated with the arguments that come from this because we use these uh, – the worst possible cases to make arguments against legislation like this. Yeah. And that makes it pretty easy to make the case that like this bail reform law was a mistake. I think as written – that's an entirely credible argument, but I don't think you have answered the concern that people have about basically jailing people who have not been convicted of a crime for a long period of time simply because they are poor. That is something I think that deserves our attention and consideration, even if this in particular law was very poorly written and as clearly allowing for cases like this where this man uh, – who attempted to stab a congressman is released on his own recognizance because it they're prohibited. The judge is prohibited from even setting bond for him. Uh, One hundred percent agree. It's a social justice issue uh, to make sure that you know bail is not basically just a get out of jail free card for the rich when it's the poor person who's going to lose their job um, if they aren't able to show up. Uh, if they're not a violent offender or attempted violent offender, they're not a clear public safety risk, there's no reason 
not to let them go back to work. You know, if they were caught with drugs or something like that, um, doesn't mean that they're, you know, we're saying that they're a good person or whatever, but what's the danger? What's the problem? You know, I think let them, let I, them I, I, I could tell go you back what to the, work. I could tell you what the danger is. And okay. the danger is something the, the economist Alex Tabarrok has written about this before, is oftentimes the practical effect of eliminating cash bail requirements is more people are imprisoned longer. We, in our efforts for a more just society, we should not think one that imprisons everyone equally is a necessarily more just society. Cash bail involves putting something up that's surrendered. This acts as a deterrent to reoffending. Now, is this system perfect? No. Is this system in all senses equitable? No. However, what we see time and again is we get high-profile cases such as this one where people look at this and they say, oh, this was a mistake. The next judge who has someone before them takes this into account and in the absence of any sort of mechanism like the bail system, the default response is we just keep them in prison until trial. And I'll, 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 I'll send along some of, the, some of that work that Alex sure. Tyberak has done on this. We'll include that in the show notes. I, I, think there's, I think there's very good empirical evidence that these reforms actually lead to on net more incarceration rather than less. So – the part of it I was actually just going to say before you added that, Dan, that I uh, – that concerns me about this as well is that part in the CNN story that I read that the judge couldn't have set bond even if he wanted to. And that is something that you know, for – we have to rewind to the 1980s and go back to uh, the, what led up to that point where we started to get laws like three strikes and you're out, where we started to get mandatory minimum sentences because you could point out all of these individual cases where you had somebody who committed a crime that was truly heinous and everybody agreed that it was heinous and it looked based on the judge's decision that they get off with just a slap on the wrist and there's moral outrage about all of that. So what you start getting in response are three strikes in your outlaws. You start getting mandatory minimum sentencing and you take the decision making out of the judge's hands entirely rather than approaching it the way that I think uh, essentially what we saw – the approach of the Federalist Society be about judges that interpret the Constitution and, uh, and legal statute, which is to breed better judges through their education and their law school careers, their continuing education, so that you're not going to have judges who are going to give a slap on the wrist to somebody who is uh, a rapist. That is harder to do and it's less concrete. And as a result, I think that kind of approach doesn't resonate with people the way that you can get the quick kind of reaction you can get from people that says you commit three crimes. Yeah, you know, you should just you should go to jail for a long time if you do that without the enough consideration of what crimes, you know, like what is what is the actual stories of these? You take it out of judges hands. They can't take any of that into consideration for the sentence that should be applied. So is it better? Again, as Dan pointed out, he's absolutely correct. These are not perfect solutions. We're never going to have perfect solutions. So what world is it better to live in? 
One where you give judges a greater amount of discretion and you're going to get, yes, the terrible edge cases of somebody who commits awful crimes and gets out with gets off with very little time served. But you're also going to give judges the ability to deal with the nuanced circumstances that exist here, or you're going to take it out of their hands entirely and mandate it, and you're going to get an entirely different form of edge cases where you're going to have people that we would all uh, – or most people I think would agree shouldn't be spending life in prison with life prison sentences because of mandatory minimums or because of three strikes and your outlaws. Sure. Just to clarify my point, I, I was not saying that uh, bail should be done away with. Yes. Um, but rather – well, I mean, I you know, I guess for violent crimes, I was I was thinking that no, you know, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's you know, the point was more about poor people, nonviolent crimes who can't afford bail. You may as well not have it to some degree. Now, I think point taken, uh, as Dan mentioned, and I, the research you know he, he mentioned uh, perhaps shows, you know, people can set up a GoFundMe for bail, that sort of thing. That's not a perfect solution, but maybe it's better than nothing. But I would rather that the default is this was a nonviolent crime. We'll let them await their trial at home, right? Instead of just having a price on it, let's let's you know let's make let's make bail be free in that sense, in those cases, right? Um, essentially, you know, um, uh, make it so they're not they don't have to be held. Um, so that was more my point. But yeah, yeah, point taken. I I, I think let's pull back to. Well, we went in a different direction based on just the evolution of that conversation, which is totally fine. But I want to pull it back to the question of political violence and and another point that uh, Dan had raised, which was about rhetoric. And here's one that I have <laughs> I, I you know I hate invoking that it's Brandeis, the um, uh, definition of pornography that I don't uh, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it uh, about political rhetoric that is excessive. So. One of the problems is political rhetoric is just laden with martial references. I mean, we call people's efforts to run for office campaigns. We talk about it in war metaphors and fighting metaphors. You know, this has been a huge part of the conversation about the January 6th stuff. That the defense of Donald Trump saying you have to fight. Okay, how do we mean fight? Do we mean fight in the political sense or do we mean actually put fists to faces? So what I, what would we encourage politicians to do with regard to their rhetoric? I think there are some things that are like abundantly clear and and one that deserves to be pointed out. Uh, Chuck Schumer, shortly after the leak of the draft Dobbs opinion, there was a rally in front of the uh, Supreme Court. And here's a quote from Schumer at that rally, quote, I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. Simultaneously abstract and at the same time, very easy to read implications of violence. What is the whirlwind? What is pay the price? Especially when you consider that these are judges who are appointed for life. So it's not like they're up for election anytime soon. And you can give that normal, they're going to pay the price at the ballot box. Nope, never going to face the ballot box. What should we encourage politicians to do, given that the kind of martial metaphor is a huge part of campaign rhetoric, of political rhetoric to begin with? What guidance would we want to give them for moderating it as a means of trying to tone things down? So in terms of political speech, um, they're like the same rules that apply to advertisers that 
um, make false advertising illegal do not apply to political ads. Basically, a politician can lie in their ad, and it is their opponent and other people's job to point that out to everyone. Um, That sounds crazy, but I think it's a positive thing in American history. Um, I think the better who, thing who to is do— the, But who are the decision makers then, right? Who, who makes the decision about—because we get into this with the battles that we now have over fact-checking, right, of, of PolitiFact determining what is a lie and what is not. And it is flawed human beings with political motivations who are making these decisions. Sure, that's true. Um, you know, I'm not saying that everybody needs to be a top-level researcher. That's not going to happen— um, but we live in a country where the ideal was, you know, as Tocqueville described, you know, the guy off in his cabin with the daily newspaper, right? Trying to stay up on things. I'm sure he had all kinds of crazy ideas about the world. <laughs> like, like, I don't think that we should presume this person, you know, was necessarily the most level-headed or educated person, but they were trying to stay involved. And I mean, yeah, there are tra- fact checkers that have been politicized or some that people just claim are politicized, but are fine. Um, and frankly, there are fact checkers on the right and the left. You know, you, publications like The Federalist are constantly fact checking left wing comments and things like that. Um, so I don't know. I guess that just doesn't bother me. Like it's I get that like it's not again, it's a not perfect situation. My thought is instead of trying to regulate their speech, um, what we need to do is find a way to bring down the stakes of politics. Uh, I think the the speech many times is in proportion to the stakes. Um, so I, you know, I might have said this before, but I'm very much, uh, I think I think votes have more power the fewer people in the voting pool, just mathematically. Um, so I think things like the direct election of senators was a mistake. Um, that's an amendment Preach, I, would, brother. I would repeal. Um, in fact, I think you should only be able to elect your most local level, and those people elect the next level and so on and so forth, because that gives your vote power. And if that person doesn't vote for someone you don't like, you can go to their office and complain to them. You can write to them. You can bump into them at the shopping mall, you know, or whatever. Um, and you can vote them out um, in a way that you just don't have that power on even a state level, not to mention a national level. Um, I think when that's the case, well, now more local issues are what people talk about. They talk about, you know, the, well, oh, you do get this in Michigan, but they talk about the bad state of the roads and they talk, you know, stuff that are nonpartisan in a lot of ways. Maybe they'll get politicized, who knows, but, you know, that'll be the day. People saying, no, the roads are great. Uh, and that's like the politicized opinion in Michigan. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but that's kind of my point is that uh, the rhetoric changes when the politician actually needs to care more about real voters instead of, you know, stoking a mob. <laughs> let, let, let me throw out a potential reform that I'm largely persuaded of here on on those lines that I think would be a help to that Uh I'm sure one of the two of you, if not both, can tell me how many members of the House of Representatives there are. Oh, let's see. Not enough. 435. (laughs) And Dan is absolutely correct. But how did we get 435? This was capped in – I forget the amendment. But this would have been – At the recommendation of the fire marshal because of how many people they thought they could safely get into the chamber of the House of Representatives. That is an absurd reason 
to have only 435 people. And as a result, because of how much the country has grown and how many more people there are, you have congressmen who are representing hundreds of thousands of people. And I think that is something that absolutely would shock the people who uh, created the House of Representatives, that they are representing that big of a territory. And that many people. And also, the more districts you have, the easier it will be to deal with problems of political gerrymandering because there isn't as much territory to draw the uh, you know abstract Picasso-esque creations right. that we get in places like Maryland and particularly in Chicago. Yeah, we've lost a certain amount of scalability that was built into our republic. And I not only would I res- want to restore that, but increase it <laughs> as much as we could. And that would be a great – that would be one way. Again, you know, maybe you have a more general house and they elect 435, you know, out of that house or whatever. But again, you have this relationship where uh, the individual voters vote matters a lot more. But back to Eric's track about political rhetoric, there will always be provocateurs. And in fact, there has always in the history of this great republic been provocateurs. When you were reading off Senator Schumer's statement, I was thinking of Malcolm X's statement in the wake of President Kennedy's assassination that the chickens have come home to roost. One of the things that's very different from the environment today versus the environment of, of, uh, of, the, of the early 1960s when that statement caused so much public outrage was the fact that it was merely a provocateur saying it. Respectable media authorities were not saying that. There were not these uh, – there was a more responsible press at that point. And so you will always get on the margins of politics people who find it useful to use incendiary rhetoric. What has changed is the idea that that sort of incendiary rhetoric can sell newspapers and in fact is done to sell newspapers. Um, you see this and, this, and this has a lot to do with business models and the decline of advertising. Subscribers tend to be a lot more ideologically motivated than advertisers. Advertisers want to get the newspaper in front of as many eyeballs as possible. Subscription numbers are based on loyalty are based on carving out an ideological niche. And papers in this country have long had ideological niches where some papers are more right-wing, some papers are more left-wing. But the commercial interests of advertisers helped moderate that sum. And when you remove that commercial interest that's interested in an inclusive and broad audience and you chase after the fringes um, in search of subscribers, this is the sort of thing that can often result where it's no longer simply political provocateurs or radical activists, but it becomes the organs of public opinion themselves that double down on this sort of rhetoric. And, uh, you know, you have people who could be radicalized by the New York Times as a result. Broadcasting is dead. It is all narrow casting now where the focus especially of cable news broadcasters is that they would rather have an incredibly reliable 2% of the total potential audience 
than content that would give them an opportunity to get 10 or 15 percent of that audience. I think that speaks to the exact problem that Dan brought up. We should move on to our next topic, but I want to, um, uh, with apologies to the National Review Editors podcast, we'll do an exit question on this one. Uh, a scale of one to 10, how concerned are you about political violence in this country? One being not at all concerned, 10 being hair tearing panic. Dylan. There's a lot to factor in. Uh, you know, any given day, it's probably more like a three, but then things happen and it's up to five or six. I guess so average it out to about a my, four. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's too low, but I think that's about where I am. Dan? I would say five. I would say most instances that you have are attempts, like we recently witnessed, that are thwarted by law enforcement, um, by the crowds themselves, which often act to contain these sorts of individuals. The problem is if it happens to a particular person at a particular time, this can reverberate throughout a society. You think about, uh, to take us back to the 1960s, uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King was the precursor to violence on a nationwide level mm-hmm. as the effects of that political violence rippled out throughout many of America's major cities. Um, and that is the real danger is these do not always remain isolated instances. These can also serve as the pretext to um, tyranny. Where you have, you know, security states that emerge in response to political violence that affects the civil and political rights of everyone in a negative way. So right there at five. I I think I'm at a five as well and, and for similar reasons to Dan that I, I worry about the contagion effect of this that if it – does start happening more frequently that much as we have the problem with mass shootings, that we have the copycat effect, that when somebody sees the glory that somebody gets for deciding to uh, take, you know, end their life or feel that they are so despondent that this is the only way to make their life seem meaningful, it motivates somebody else to do the same thing. I, I worry about that copycat contagion effect. Uh, but I, I think thankfully we have not seen uh, enough incidents of this yet for me to be much more concerned. But I, I think my concern is higher than the actual number of incidents would dictate, but nonetheless, I think is there at a five. Let's move on to our next topic. So uh, President Biden just recently got back from a visit to the Middle East where he was in Saudi Arabia. Uh, a lot of consternation about this for two reasons. Um, one of them, uh, with a lot more moral implications, I think, than the other. Uh, the least moral uh, implicating of the issues would be one of the reasons he went over there was essentially to beg Saudi Arabia to start producing more oil because of how high gas prices are. And he really left without any kind of a commitment to do so. Uh, Again, there's plenty of things that uh, one could do within this own country in order to start producing more oil. And we don't need to go begging from uh, regimes that I think we would all agree at the outset that uh, Saudi Arabia, not the greatest place, uh, not really a good 
not really desirable to be in a position to beg them for something like this. But a lot of the consternation, I think, dates back to – now, there are plenty of other incidents, but one of the galvanizing ones was the murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi uh, in a Turkish embassy a few years ago. There was a lot of feeling that you know we should not deal with the Saudis anymore as a result of that. The I think the response to that would be that we have strategic security interests in that region and mostly vis-a-vis Iran. And Saudi Arabia is a bulwark against the um, power and aspirations of Iran in that region. And as a result, we deal with them while recognizing somewhat maybe sort of kind of sort of that they aren't particularly great people and they do uh, suppress human rights. They do things like murder a journalist. What is the – what is a sense of you know our, our desire to promote a free and virtuous society? What does that have to say about whether or not the United States should deal with countries like Saudi Arabia? Are there greater concerns that can outweigh uh, the – immorality of dealing with Saudi Arabia or you know should we take a much more hardline approach on this I mean I think international trade relations should be negotiations it should actually be you know some kind of barter and yeah you should be able to put things on the table you say look we want to buy your oil but you got to treat your people better right and then you you know you have to have the the ability to back that up I think we do. I think we could produce more of our own oil, pump more of our own our own oil and refine it. Um, we could also talk with other potential allies in terms of oil producing nations. Um, so there's the sort of thing that we got to be willing to, to follow through on it or it's just an empty it's just empty rhetoric at that point. Right. Um, and I mean, the, if the motivation is simply that Biden doesn't like how gas prices are affecting his popularity rating, um, that's just you know, how about we, we get the dollar under control? How about, you know, there's there's all sorts of things we can do to fight inflation and to deal with our gas prices. Again, pumping more of our own oil and refining more of our, our own oil be one of those things. Um, so I don't know. I don't think that we should necessarily say no. There's a lot of reasons to have a friendly-ish relationship with Saudi Arabia, as much as I do think they are a terrible regime. And I think we should be a bit more serious about this. Um, they are strategic you know, partner in terms of, you know, Iran, as you mentioned. Um, There's also an issue of we uh, want to be religiously welcoming place in the United States. Um, One of the five pillars of Islam is a pilgrimage to Mecca. (laughs) We want American Muslims to be able to make that pilgrimage. Like, I mean, that's not high on anybody's list, I don't think. But like, it's something we ought to consider that, that that's something that would directly, unfortunately, uh, affect the religious life of any Muslim American. Um, there's just there's a lot. It's complex as any geopolitical issue is. Um, so I wish we would be a bit more hardline, um, but I don't. I would not speak in absolutes either. Only a Sith speaks in absolutes. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, the, there's a problem when foreign policy and national interests is conflated with personal political interests. Joe Biden came into office pledging a harder line approach to Saudi Arabia. In fact, disparaging President, what he saw as President Trump's uh, 
very cozy relationship with Trump Saudi touched Arabia. the orb. Yes, he touched the orb. Um, Everything went crazy after that. And if if American policy is driven by you know the price of oil, by the price of grain, by um, international market fluctuations, that's not a policy. It's it's just not. Um, and I think that there is a case for having principled, stable policy positions that then not only potential adversaries but allies can see America as a predictable actor. Because when things get out of hand in foreign policy, it is largely because things do not go as planned. People respond in ways that they didn't think they would, and these can have tragic results. Now, how you go about setting a principled foreign policy where you apply the same standards to, let's say, Saudi Arabia as you apply to, let's say, North Korea or China or Turkey. Um, There are all sorts of nations around the world that differ very much from the United States, some that align more to what we consider traditional American values and some less. But if America's foreign policy is seen as arbitrary, that doesn't send a clear signal to anyone and doesn't result us moving the international community in any direction whatsoever. There's a problem here, particularly in that it it is these provocative individual cases that are the kind of thing that people can really wrap their minds around. I mean, anybody who's seen the film The Dissident, um, which is about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, that is the kind of thing that you can comprehend in a way that you you can you can understand the suppression of human rights that happens. Uh, in a nation like Saudi Arabia in the abstract, but what happened to Jamal Khashoggi is just so very easy and clear to understand. But on the flip side, you just as a nation with the geopolitical concerns that the United States have cannot let that one individual incident dictate your foreign policy approach to that entire region. Um, To Dylan's point about the pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina, I think it's entirely reasonable to expect that if it weren't, you know, the the current uh, royal family running Saudi Arabia, uh, very likely the regime that would run it would be worse and not better than the one that currently exists. Um, You get to this kind of foreign policy realism, um, and we'll include in the show notes as well the older essay from 79, Essay and Commentary, from Gene Kirkpatrick on dictatorships and double standards, uh, that, you know, it, it is a tough and a very just very tough thing to balance what Dan got to at the, at the end of his point there, that you don't want it to appear arbitrary, but it also can't be, you know, we can't approach every single nation exactly the same way, uh, because even if you had, you know, take Venezuela as a result, as a comparison, Venezuela does horrible and awful things as well, but they aren't a strategic bulwark against a uh, nation like Iran that has aggressive 
uh, an aggressive agenda. Uh, it, it is hard to define these things, and it is messy and yucky that we do have to deal with nations like Saudi Arabia. Um, I, I think people are right, though, that the way that previous presidents – you could go back to Bush and the hand-holding with the Sauds, uh, literal hand-holding of the Sauds uh, – has seemed to be somewhat just kind of gross and you know, very weak. And I think there's a way that a president could position both themselves individually and the country as being a little stronger on these things while also recognizing at the end of the day we are not going to torch our defense strategic alliance with this country because of the overwhelming other concerns that exist in the region. Right. Like there should be some real consequences for the assassination of a journalist. There should be – frankly, consequences for everything going on in Yemen, right? Like we should we should say this is unacceptable. Yeah, maybe we still need to work with them militarily um, in terms of our national defense. But again, that doesn't mean that they are the only nation in the world that we can trade with in terms of oil, right? Um, I agree that most options are bad. Um, but maybe we could find a less bad or at least a, just an equally bad alternative to try to pressure them, right, to change, um, make a strategic move on very clearly set principles and standards, as Dan mentioned, so that this isn't something that looks like a leader just, you know, as Trump often did, uh, kind of just going with his own personal whim um, or as Biden seems to be doing, trying to help his poll numbers. Um, but rather, no, we drew this line in the sand and you crossed it. And so we are going to do exactly what we said we were going to do, which is we're going to with we're going to pump more of our own oil or we're going to buy some more from somebody else, whatever the case may be. Uh, and we'll take a year off and we'll talk to you next year. Right. Or something like that. Right. It doesn't have to be a permanent thing. It doesn't have to be we're going to burn all the bridges. But I can just say, look, that's that's. Let's come to a better uh, situation uh, so that we at least feel like our, our hands are a little less bloody, um, you know, secondarily in all of this. If you, if you look at sort of the history of great statesmen, what is fascinating, what's most fascinating is that they are great statesmen and stateswomen. And that what this is, is an art more than it is a science. And it takes people with a certain vision of their nation and its place in the world, in the international community. And many of these people, you know, throughout history are very different and, and have conflicting sort of interests. Uh, very famously, Charles de Gaulle often had conflicting interests with the United States and the vision of, of France in the world as he, he saw as what it should be. But these people have interests in a vision that is larger than themselves and is in some way predictable and is a, and, and, and exists in the world in a way in which that other statesmen and stateswomen around the world can understand it even if they do not disagree with it. And maybe that's the place to start is just – we need to look for people with a principled vision that is understandable, 
that have a way of leading and marshalling the State Department, the, dip- the diplomatic corps, along the lines of that vision, because it seems right now that we don't. We, do, we don't have that. We don't have a policy that I can agree or disagree with. Yeah. Because if we were to have this conversation a, a year ago about President Biden's orientation towards Saudi Arabia, it would be a completely different conversation than the one we're having today. And what we're seeing is a failure to exercise any sort of statesmanship, one in which I don't even feel comfortable disagreeing with because I don't know what it's driven by other than domestic political concerns, which should be concerning. Joe Biden is back from his trip to the Middle East, but he is also out of commission as he has come down with COVID-19. We do wish him well and a speedy recovery. Uh, And it is a reminder that uh, COVID is still a thing, Uh, certainly not to the level it was in April of 2020, although there certainly are some of the attempts to mitigate it, some of the cultural residue of that time. I was in Washington, D.C. over the weekend and the extent to which even though a lot of the mandates don't exist in D.C. anymore, people act as if they still do. But one of those mandates that does exist has been recently highlighted to me because I'm a big fan of Major League Baseball. And in mid-July, the Kansas City Royals had a trip to Toronto to play the Toronto Blue Jays. They did so without 10 members of their 26-man roster because those individuals were not vaccinated against COVID-19. They included all-star outfielder Andrew Benintendi, who is a uh, – the trade deadline is a week from tomorrow, and he is a piece that is likely getting moved. And teams like in the AL East where you might have to pay, play a series against Toronto have to take that into consideration as of right now, whether or not you want to trade for him because you may be without him for half of that series. Also included two-time All-Star Whit Merrifield, future cornerstones Kyle Isbell and MJ Melendez and outfielder Michael A. Taylor. 10 total, unable to travel. We're seeing this again now with the St. Louis Cardinals who are headed up to Toronto, and they will not be bringing along with them two of their real stars, third baseman Nolan Arenado and first baseman Paul Goldschmidt, uh, to all-stars as well as two contenders for the National League MVP award. So this is... This is interesting to me because Canada still having these requirements you know, now midway through 2022. Is there any sense in having a requirement like this anymore? And is it going to be again in, in New York? We had the requirement for you know people to be vaccinated in work settings, and that produce this insanity that uh, in New Jersey Nets games, Kyrie Irving. Brooklyn Nets Bro- Brooklyn Nets. I, I'm, I'm going back in time there. This is how little uh, people who are fans of New York sports like I am think about the Nets. I still think they're in New Jersey. They're in Brooklyn. They might as well be in New Jersey. Um, uh, Brooklyn Nets games, Kyrie Irving could attend and watch, but he couldn't play. Which was absurd. And it eventually was changed, not because uh, they wanted to get Kyrie Irving back on the floor, because, again, nobody in New York really cares about the Nets, but because baseball season was starting 
I think both the Yankees and Mets have players who are not vaccinated. Does it make any sense for these travel requirements to still exist? Um, I So we, we now have not just vaccination um, and masks, but we have some very good treatments, some you know antiviral drugs. And I'm not talking about the sketchy ones. I'm talking about real ones uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, I'm sure President Biden is currently receiving. Um, and, I, and I would echo that we absolutely wish him uh, a speedy reco- recovery and would pray for that as well. Um, but I, I look at this and at, at some point, this has to be come to be a matter of personal responsibility. And if all of the Toronto Blue Jays are vaccinated, yes, it can still spread to vaccinated people, but it's less severe. They are far more protected. They're also playing a game outside or at least in a giant dome, uh, depending on the, the field. Um, this doesn't seem like a high risk situation in the same way they could have, they could, we have testing as well. They could test all the players as they enter the country. There's a lot of things you can do if you still want to be very cautious about COVID without making that a requirement. Um, it, it's very rare, but there are instances where medically people actually can't be vaccinated. There, there are reasons why you need to have some exceptions, uh, available, um, and so I don't really see it. Also, I haven't followed Major League Baseball in a while. I do love baseball. But is anyone really worried about losing to the Blue Jays? I mean, that, yes, that the is, Blue Jays are a good okay. team. All right. Fair enough. Uh, years ago, that would not have been a concern for anyone. They'd be like, yeah, we'll send our you know second string and we'll still win. So, <laughs> yeah, the uh, part of the going back in, in time before a lot of even before the vac- vaccine was available and the mitigation measures that um, or the treatments that you were referencing were available. Of all the sports that it made the least sense to me to be that concerned about, baseball was at the top. Because football, you're getting in players' faces. Hockey, you're in close contact with people. Baseball, you're spread out throughout the field. Only one batter goes up to the plate at, the, at a time. You can, you can effectively social distance play baseball uh, in a way that you just can't do it in, with football or hockey or basketball or a bunch of other sports. So, you know, the... Baseball in and of itself, it just it always seemed to me to be a little over the top. There's also the economic consideration for Canadian professional sports. You rightfully point out that the Blue Jays are Canada's only team. That has not always been the case. There was, of course, the Montreal Expos. We had similar problems uh, in the past NBA season with the Toronto Raptors. There was once also a Vancouver NBA team that is no longer, that is now uh, in Memphis. Um these destinations uh, are not desirable destinations for players. Part of this is there's exchange rates that factor into this. There's tax rates. There's the fact that uh, many of the players um, are are either Americans or you know there's just a very small percentage of Canadian players in Major League Baseball, and this creates. Um, all sorts of challenges for those markets, um, for professional sports to emerge. And those competing jurisdictions, um, it, 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 it really hurts um, any sort of international play. Um, and, is, and is one of those things that's been sort of a very sad story 
in sports generally because, you know, there have been tremendous talent on all of these teams. The Blue Jays have won the World Series before. They've had some incredible teams. Um, but I don't see how you can have a league function. Eric and I were talking before the show, you know, there's a very strong possibility that the Blue Jays could be in the World Series this year. And what that would look like when you have perhaps star players on an opposing team that would not be able to enter the country, would the Blue Jays play those games in Buffalo as they played uh, many games in prior seasons that were uh, affected by COVID? Um, That's difficult to say, but that is something that um, Major League Baseball will have to decide because they want those star players involved. Well, the financial loss to the city of Toronto as well and to the Blue Jays organization if they had to play those games in the United States instead of playing them in Canada, Um, you know, I I think – changing these travel requirements makes sense at this point. Uh, But it does feel a little ridiculous that it is Major League uh, Baseball or sports in general that may be the impetus for it happening. And I guess in a way, if good things happen, why do I care so much about the reason why? But to the point Dan was just making, uh, if you believe that it should be individual's choice whether or not to get the vaccine, which I do, although I think people should get it, it is far more coercive in the National Hockey League. Because you have six teams in Canada uh, and you have, as a result of having six teams in Canada, you know, this, the setup of Major League Baseball, um, the Cardinals, it, it is the kind of exception that they're playing an interleague series against Toronto. So a lot of National League teams, half the National League teams, I believe, two-thirds of the National League teams, I think, aren't going to travel to Toronto at any point during this season. But in any given National Hockey League season, you're going to have a couple of swings through Canada where you're going to play, you know, you you play teams within your conference multiple times. You play teams outside of your conference once at home and once on the road. So if you're an NHL player, it you pretty much have to be vaccinated. You uh, don't. The Red Wings had players that were not. Right. Simply did not play in the, Canada. The, again, with no uh, meaning disrespect to the Red Wings, um, you, the Red Wings were not going to be a Stanley Cup final team last year. They were one of the worst teams in the league. You did not hear these stories amongst the high contending teams. You didn't hear it about the Tampa Bay Lightning. You didn't hear it about the Colorado Avalanche. You didn't, you know, it obviously the Canadian teams themselves, pretty much there's a mandate that they be vaccinated. Uh, but it's far more coercive then as a result of all of that. And that's purely an economic reason that they're being coerced into to doing so. And while I think it is advisable that they get vaccinated, I don't like the coercion element. So no more Steve Eiserman or Paul Coffey on the Red Wings. Uh, said it's been a little while since I've been following Steve Eiserman as well. He's their general the manager. Wings. Oh well, there we go. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all, all right. things old are new again. <laughs> I think we should probably call it a wrap there for today. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look now in the show notes where you will find a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind. Or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. Act and Unwind.